uh, J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, uh, makes a humbling observation of this text that we're studying this morning. He makes the observation that we are prone to have small thoughts of God. Here's what Packer writes in Knowing God about this text. He says, commenting on verses 18 and 40, which is the anthem question of our text, to, the, the, the text asks the question, to whom will you compare God? And here's what Packer has to say. He says this, this question rebukes wrong thoughts about God. This is where most of us go astray. Our thoughts of God are not great enough. Because we ourselves are limited and weak, we imagine that at some points God is too. He must be like us. And we find it hard to believe that he's not like us. Church, you are prone to think small thoughts of a great God. So that's the, that's the core point Packer is arguing for in that, in that quotation. What you think of God might trend to think of yourself. You might think, oh, what I am capable of, therefore, is what God is capable of. And this thinking needs correcting. Packer goes on to say that the remedy for this is for us to form a right idea of God's greatness. And in order to do so, we must remove our thoughts of God from our thoughts, the limits that would make him small and puny. So in other words, you might say that small thoughts of God leads to small trust in him because you think he's no more capable than you are. This is the, the problem that our text answers this morning. So how do you remove small thoughts of God? Well, verses 12 through 26 will answer this question. It will repair our small thoughts with great thoughts of God through four comparisons. Four comparisons. So my goal in the next 25 minutes is for us to consider these four comparisons. And my prayer would be that as we do so, as we consider these four comparisons, that you would conclude that God is great and therefore you can trust him greatly. That's my prayer for you this morning. That you would see from Isaiah 40 that God is great and you can trust him greatly. So first, first comparison. We see this, this truth in four ways. The first one is God is great in his capability. Capability. Verse 12, look with me. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? The obvious answer to this rhetorical question is no one. No one has done this apart from God. You know, who's measured all the oceans in the palm of their hand? No, no one's measured and marked off the heavens with the distance between their thumb and their pinky finger, which is a span. None of us have done that, but God is being attributed to do this. None of us has collected the dust of the earth or put rocky mountains on a scale. None of us can do it because we're too small. God is far more capable than us. You know, m many people marvel at the beauty and the splendor of the Grand Canyon, but who of us was there when it was made? And who of us can use our pinky and our thumb and measure just how great the canyon? None of us can, but God can. 
He is far greater than you and I. Verse 12 is depicting God as sort of a cosmic creator, a grand architect who is measuring and marking and closing and weighing his creation. God is incomparably great in his capability, for only he can hold creation in his hand. Think, think about what you can hold in your hand or measure with your pinky and your thumb. Okay, you can hold a pen. Bravo, you know, impressive. You can, uh, I know maybe you can measure your iPhone with your, uh, the span of your hand. Well, not if you have an iPhone Plus, then, then you can't measure that. Your hand's too small. Or, or maybe you can hold four grocery bags in your hand. Now, that is impressive. It is tough. Tough to hold four, four grocery bags in your hand. But even that is incomparable to how great God's capacity is. God is not like us. Man's creative capabilities are infinitely small in comparison to God's. God is your cosmic creator. He's in a class of his own. He's, he's matchless. He's unrivaled in his capability. He's the one that can mark and measure and enclose the heavens and the earth because he's the, he's the creator of all of it. So therefore, however, you are prone to think small thoughts about this great God we're studying in this text, to think that God is only capable of what you're capable of doing. And in times of despair, this is especially tempting to believe. It's tempting to, to believe that God, God has a small capacity, that God is just a four-grocery bag God handling your problems. If that is your view of God, it's going to be too small in the heat of life. When the sharp teeth of life take its bite, a four-grocery bag God is not going to be enough. We need, we need to behold his greatness. <clears throat> God can handle more than four grocery bags. Verse 12 shows us that. So we see that first, God is great in his capability, which is good news to everyone in the room this morning because that means you don't have to be a control at all because God is capable of it all. Second, God is great in his counsel, his counsel. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom does he consult? Who made God understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And who showed him the way of understanding? Just like in verse 12, here again in verses 13 and 14, Isaiah is asking the people the question, the rhetorical question, who is like this? And by way of comparison, you're supposed to answer, no one but God. You may have noticed this repetition of the question, who, 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 who? In verses 12 through 26, the whole passage is riddled with this question, who? It's asked 12 times in just 15 verses. And each time the answers are resounding, none. No one can compare to our great God. Over and against the counterfeit gods of Isaiah's time, God had no counselors. For example, in Babylonian mythology, one commentator notes that the creator god Marduk could not create without first consulting I, the all-wise one. But the, our Lord, the Lord, works with unaided wisdom. He needs, he needs to seek no consult. God is great in his counsel. He needs no school teacher. 
For who's the one that's ever taught him or showed him the ropes? No one. Most of us in this room will spend the first 18 years of your life studying something. Your, your primary occupation, likely, for the first 18 or so years of your life will be student. You'll be studying. You'll be working hard at reading, writing, speaking, learning about history, art, parts of the cell. You'll learn about mitochondria, the nucleus, cytoplasm, ribosomes. I don't remember what those mean. <laughs> Some of you have forgotten lots of this that you've worked hard at. Now let me ask you this. What school has God ever enrolled in? What university has ever conferred him a degree? What graduation ceremony has he ever participated in? Church, you can trust God greatly because he's unlike any of us. He's never been to school. He's never needed to learn the difference between diameter and circumference. He's never needed to be quizzed on identifying the 50 states. He never needed to learn the alphabet or that velocity equals distance over time. Rather, he created all the realities behind our curiosities. Unlike Babylonian mythology, and unlike you and me, God has never consulted anyone because he's great in his counsel. So in times of despair, you will crave knowledge. You will crave counsel. You'll crave an expert word. So much so that when you hit dead ends in knowledge, you'll seek knowledge elsewhere. This is heightened in times of despair. So like when the doctor tells you, oh, sorry, you know, I've never seen this before. That happened to me last summer. I heard those words from a doctor. And guess what? Immediately, when I'm hearing this doctor, I think, well, I want to go ask another. You want to seek more counsel. You want to seek more answers, especially in times of despair. But remember, there is one who has no limits to their knowledge. God has never said, I've never seen this before. And that is a great comfort to those that are experiencing deep suffering. You need to be reminded of this this morning. Because God is great in his counsel, which is good news to you this morning, because it, doesn't, it means that you don't have to be a know-it-all. And your doctor doesn't have to be a know-it-all. And in fact, those of you who are in the medical field, you don't have to be a know-it-all. So it's okay if you don't have answers. Don't give your patient false hope. Because you know that you have limits, and that's okay. You have a category of who has no limits, and that is only God. And so even if you're on the other side of the exam table, it's okay for you in the medical field to not have exhaustive knowledge. That's okay too. Because God is great in his counsel, you don't have to be a know-it-all. That's our second comparison. Third comparison, God is great in his control. Look with me again in our text, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, and are as counted by him as less than nothing, emptiness. These verses, 15 through 17, highlight the insignificant control of the nations, the rulers of this world, compared to the great control of God in verse 17. 
The nations are the, the, those who have powers outside of God's family in this text. And we, we see that they are insufficient in two ways, both in their size and in their sovereignty. The nations are insufficient in two ways, size and sovereignty. First, they're insignificant in their size. They're described here in the text as a drop in the bucket. Now, let me ask you, as you were filling up your water bottles this morning, coming to church, how many of you paused and, and were sad over and thought about that tiny little drop that rolled off the edge that you didn't manage to get in the bottle? You probably didn't think twice about that drop. You probably just filled your bottle and moved on. The insignificance of that drop that didn't make it in your bottle is the comparison of the insignificance of the powers of this world outside of God's family. That's the comparison Isaiah is making. You didn't think twice about it. The nations, verse 15, are like a drop from a bucket or from your water bottle. The nations are insignificantly small. But when you read the newspaper, that news is going to proclaim a different anthem. The news is going to say, the powers of this world are mighty. But Isaiah is giving a counter-narrative. And, and the narratives are persuasive. And I'm asking you to draw your attention to this one. The nations are a drop in the bucket. They're infinitely small when compared to God. But not just small in size, they're also small in their sovereignty, their ability to rule. Verse 22 it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness? Here God is, is being depicted as a king who is sitting above the universe, sitting above all humanity. He's matchless in his control. He's the one that sets the course of history. He can bring princes to nothing, verse 23. This means that you and me and all of creation are ultimately subject to God's control, not man's. Notice he likens the inhabitants of the earth to itty-bitty insects, grasshoppers. Church, you are a grasshopper, verse 22. You're an itty-bitty, tiny insect bouncing around thinking you know some things and can control some things. But in reality, God can squish all the power of a grasshopper in an instant. We are all prone to think small thoughts of God. You're prone to think small thoughts of his control this morning. To think that God is only capable of controlling what you're able to manage and control. However, if you believe this, this truth that Isaiah is presenting to us today, that God is truly great in his control, the result will be that you would fear man less and you would trust God more. If you would truly take this truth into reality, believe it, enjoy it, you wouldn't work so hard to be in control at all, controlling every aspect of your life. You wouldn't work so hard to be a perfectionist at home, or at school, or at work, or in ministry. Because you'd see yourself simply as a grasshopper at the mercy of the hands of a great controlling God who sits above the heavens of the earth, who's on a cosmic throne. Church, you don't have to be a control at all because there is one who truly is the control at all. 
God controls everything. God is great in his control, so you don't have to be a control at all. So, so far, we've seen that God is great in his capability, his counsel, and third, his control. And I have one more comparison, the fourth one. And this one truly makes all the difference, actually. It makes all the difference before us, to us, because imagine if there was a firefighter in Downingtown, and he was highly capable, he knew how to fight fires, he knew how to manage people to control the fire, and you had a fire in your house. But imagine that firefighter, when you called 911, he wasn't willing, he wasn't caring enough to climb out of his cot and respond to your need. It's not enough to know someone who is capable of helping you, who knows how to solve your problem, who knows how to control all the circumstances, but he's not caring enough to do something about it. That's not enough. But this is the fourth characteristic. God is great in his care. This is the dilemma we face. We struggle to believe if God actually cares. We're prone to think small thoughts of God's care for us. Don't you resonate with verse 27? Look at it with, look at it with me. Why do you say, O Jacob, or I might say, O Brandywine Grace, why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right or the cares of my life is disregarded by God? One commentator commenting on verse 27 <clears throat> describes verse 27 as sort of the preannual question that all sufferers ask. Why doesn't God take action in my situation? Does he not care? That's the, that's the question of verse 27. That's the question I ask when I'm in suffering. In other words, you might say that you believe that God is great in his capability, in his counsel, in his control, but you question if he really cares about you. In great despair, you question God's care. But is, this real, is, it, is it really God who disregards us or is it, is it backwards? Are we disregarding God? Has the suffering and the circumstances drawn all of our attention away from the greatness of God? Perhaps it's us who are disregarding him. Like verse 28. Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, church, you, you actually know. There's evidences, historical evidences in your, in your lives, works of grace that God has cared for you in the past. And, and it's easy to forget about how he cared for you last week or five years back how he led you through that difficult circumstance. And so when this new circumstance comes up, we're forgetful ones. We forget how wonderfully caring, controlling, compassionate he was five years ago. Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. There it is, he cares, see that? He gives power to the faint. Verse 29, and to him who has no might, he increases their strength. That is God's care on display for you this morning. Verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall, not, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
for anyone. You can trust God greatly because the everlasting creator of verse 28 cares about you. You who are weary and faint-hearted this morning, God cares about you. Don't forget this. God offers his greatness. He's not stingy. He's great in his care. So since God is great in his care, you don't have to be a care at all. You don't have to be the one that always is hustling around, solving all the world's problems, and your neighbor's problems, your kid's problems, your teacher's problems, your coworker's problems, your manager's problems. You don't have to be a care at all. You can put your head to bed on the pillow of God's care for you this, this, tonight. The main question we've been asking this whole time is, is who? Who on earth can compare? Who can compare in capability, in counsel, in control, and in care? And the answer has been this rhetorical none. None can compare. No one. None of us. But there is one. There is one. None can compare to the attributes described in Isaiah 40. But Christ. Astonishingly, all these four attributes that we've just considered, capacity, counsel, control, care, can be ultimately seen in Jesus. So it's Jesus that you can trust greatly. Colossians 1, 15. Jesus is the image of this invisible God in verse 40. Sorry, Isaiah 40. He's the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2. In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. You know, so think about it. Who is it that is capable of making all things? It's Jesus. What do we read in John 1? We read, though Jesus, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. Who is it that can heal the sick with a touch? Who, who is it that can make the blind see and the deaf hear, the lame walk and the dead rise at a word? Who is it that casts out demons? Who is it that walks on water? and who speaks to the waves, and they obey his voice. It's Jesus. Jesus is great in capability. So you can trust all your creaturely cares to him. What about counsel? Who is it that teaches in such a way that leaves the religious elite of his time dumbfounded? Mark 1. Who is it that the Apostle Paul calls the wisdom of God? Who is it that teaches the heaven that the kingdom is at hand. Who is it that teaches that he can forgive sin? Mark 2. It's Jesus. Jesus is great in his counsel. So you can trust all of your counseling cares to Christ. What about control? Who is it that sits above the circle of the earth with control? Who is it that judges the living of the dead? Living in the dead. Who is it that sits at the right hand of the Father? Who is it that brings princes to nothing? It's Jesus. Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and visible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 2. Christ is the head over every power and authority. Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them through his cross. So who, I ask, who who is it that's great in capability and counsel and control? 
It's Jesus. He's the one that is great, but he's also great in care. No one is as caring as Jesus is. Consider, who is it that came to seek and save the lost? Who is it that perfectly loved God and loved his neighbor? Who is it that has compassion on the harassed ones? Who is it that sought you in his coming, who bought you with his blood, and has brought you into his family? Jesus. Matthew 20. Jesus came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus cares. So you can trust Jesus. If you trust in his perfect life in your place, that not only frees you from small thoughts of God, but it cancels the debt of your sin, which is the wages of death. So why trust Jesus? Because he cares so much about you. He cares what you faced this week and what you're feeling this morning. So much so that he came to die in your place. That's how much he cares. Jesus, Jesus' great care is displayed on his, in his death for sinners. So you can trust him. You can trust Jesus when you're anxious. You can trust him when you're afraid. You can trust him when you're angry. You can trust him when you're depressed. You can trust him when you're sick. You can trust him when you're lonely, when you're confused, when you're despairing. You can trust Jesus, church. How? What might this trust in the midst of suffering look like? Remembering who the great one is. How do you trust him? By remembering that he's the great, he's the one with great capacity, great counsel, great control, great care. Friends, if you trust in Jesus, you won't wear yourself thin trying to be a do-it-all or a know-it-all or a control-it-all or a care-it-all. This is the hope that our text gives us. Rather, if you see the greatness of God, you'll be like the one who's described in verse 31. Life will feel like you are one who is soaring on great wings, like the great eagle. You're going to feel like one who runs but doesn't wear out, who walks and never faints because you are remembering that you have a great God. Jesus is great, church, so you can trust him greatly. Amen?